everyone and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Natasha, editor of the podcast. After months of inertia, this last week has seen Theresa May sprinting towards the Brexit finish line like a dog on Red Bull. To bring some clarity to the Brexit bedlam, I spoke to Dr Simon Usherwood, Deputy Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, a think tank specialising in UK-EU relations. So, if you want to know Theresa May's next steps, Brexit's impact on immigration and, most importantly, whether my mum's chihuahua will still be able to enjoy freedom of movement, this podcast is essential listening. Here now with more news, debate and opinion. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's dive straight into it. This week, Theresa May stirred great controversy by arguing that her draft Brexit deal withdrawal will stop EU migrants from, quote, jumping the queue. Could you explain what the post-Brexit immigration system could look like? Uh, with great difficulty, uh, <laughs> is, the, is, the, is the honest answer. Uh, this deal does talk about, well, the political declaration does talk about ending freedom of movement. But that that doesn't really tell you very much, because uh, whilst you might be ending freedom of movement, as understood under EU rules, we still don't really have a clear idea of what the UK's post-Brexit immigration policy looks like. And I think one of the things that uh, we, we just don't know at this stage is uh, how much does the UK uh, and indeed the EU want to, to put limits or constraints on uh, the longer term movement of uh, nationals uh, between each other's territories. It's maybe worth saying that, you know, when we're talking about freedom of movement here, we're not talking about uh, holidays, short term visits, uh, the, the kind of thing that you, you might do uh, uh, on a kind of a personal basis. We're talking here about people who want to live and work on a, on a semi-permanent basis. Uh, and what do they need to, to do to be able to do that? So it's very unclear, basically. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a striking difference from every other aspect of Brexit. Um, this is, I think, this is the real problem uh, for the government, is that there still isn't really a consensus about what the purpose of this exercise might be. Why why are we leaving the EU? We've, we've got a decision from the referendum. We've got a commitment to, to see that uh, decision uh, put into effect. But we, we haven't really got a, a clear rationale that uh, a broad group of people buy into. Um, and without that, it becomes really hard to know quite what to do in terms of policy you know are we trying to reduce the barriers raise them drop some raise some others uh you know and if you think about the, the different discourses and rhetoric that you hear uh from governments about what the uk's place in the world might be sometimes it's about opening the doors to global trade being a kind of a free trade buccaneer and uh, uh that kind of implies actually relatively liberal and open immigration policy other times, and particularly from Theresa May, she's talking about putting uh, restrictions on uh, immigration into the UK, trying to limit the impact of uh, migration uh, on uh, British services, uh, the economy, society, things like that, which is a very different kind of model. So uh, the un it's, it's, it's another manifestation of this underlying problem of the lack of clarity of, of why we're doing all of this. 
And Theresa May clearly believes that the desire to curb immigration was a key part of the reason many people voted leave. Do you think that that judgment is correct? Well, certainly uh, all the evidence suggested that immigration was a central part of people's motivations when they were voting in 2016. What's less clear is what it was about immigration that was the issue. I think one of the things that uh, was quite striking was that a lot of people's concerns about immigration uh, were not so much uh, about xenophobia or racism, but more that uh, immigration was causing difficulties with the provision of public services. So access to schools, healthcare, whatever, uh, you, you might imagine there that there was kind of uh, an inability to cope. But that's not really an issue. Well, it's partly an issue of immigration, but it's actually much more an issue of public services. You know, the, is the state in a, a position where it can cope with the demands that are placed on it? And, and that's uh, only partly down to not being sure how many people uh, might be coming into your territory because uh, the, the rest of the immigration system still allows enough flexibility that you're never entirely sure how many people are going to be coming into any particular part of the world. So uh, I think there's really this, this uncertainty and we know that immigration has become much less of a priority topic for the general public. It doesn't mean that they are no longer worried about it. I, I think partly it's because people assume that something is happening or something will be happening. And so they feel that their uh, concerns have been noted and that something's going to happen. The question is going to be that when they find out what is going to happen, uh, along with the rest of us, are they going to, to be happy and satisfied with that? I think it's also interesting that um, related as to whether people are going to be satisfied with the deal, uh, many people have commented that leaving the EU is not going to be a silver bullet for immigration. There was uh, two former Home Secretaries, Charles Clark and Alan Johnson, who wrote an article for uh, your think tank arguing that immigration could have be dealt with more effectively while remaining in the EU. Um, do you think these views are valid? Well, certainly, I think there's uh, an argument to be made that is being made about that, that, uh, you know, we know that more immigration or net migration comes from non-EU territories. We know that the governments, successive governments, have really struggled to, to manage uh, their policy on that front. So there's no immediate reason to think that uh, that will change in the immediate future. So... Uh, Yes, I think I think the issue, or certainly the presentation of the issue, was that in the EU, because there is the freedom of movement, you can never be entirely sure how many people were going to be turning up from other member states, uh, and particularly in the context of the the big movements that we saw uh, following the enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe in two thousand and four. Uh, there was, I think, a, a sort of feeling that this was uh, an excessive issue. But uh, what we, we know generally from research on migration is that it's very much driven by economic differentials, that if there's somewhere that's relatively poor and somewhere that's relatively rich, you will get a movement of people between uh, those two, from the poor to the rich. Uh, and government policy only ever kind of sits at the edge of that in making uh, people consider their choices. So uh, 
the downturn that we've seen in net migration since the referendum has been very much driven by the relative weakness of the British economy, rather than uh, migrants or potential migrants saying, oh, hang on, the UK doesn't look so friendly or policies are tightening up. It's it's much more driven by the, the economic logics that are there. So um, in that sense, I think, yes, it, it's important not to see uh, Brexit as a, a panacea. Um, you know, just to take one slightly different uh, uh, approach, during the referendum, there was uh, a degree of support from uh, some uh, migrant communities from Commonwealth countries who had become worried that because there was freedom of movement for EU nationals, that was putting restrictions on uh, immigration policy for Commonwealth countries, and that if we left, that then there might be a capacity in the, the system to allow for a relaxing of uh, uh, immigration from those countries. There's no indication from the government that that actually would happen. So uh, I, I think the danger here is that people have bought into the, the logic uh, that was advanced by uh, campaigners during the referendum and since, uh, and by government ministers, that somehow this will be uh, the, the solution to all our problems. Um, and as a general rule of thumb, simple solutions to complicated problems don't work. Otherwise, we would have done them. On the flip side, there are many people across the country who would be unhappy about ending freedom of movement and immigration if Theresa May did manage to cramp down on it. How would the prime minister be able to reduce migration to the tens of thousands while still satisfying businesses and providing labour for public services? Well, with great difficulty, the, you know, the, the tens of thousands figure has been uh, a real albatross around the neck of the government. Um, it sounds good, but it's it's literally a number plucked out of the air. It has no meaning because the needs of the economy are constantly changing, uh, both in terms of overall demand, in terms of sectoral demand. And we, we keep on hearing stories about localised shortages of labour in particular sectors, uh, at particular times, and to say arbitrarily we won't go above net migration of a hundred thousand is is has has no sense. So uh, I think you know for me the interesting point is that the government has stuck with that uh, uh, figure um, throughout a lot of criticism for it when it's had opportunities to to say we can review uh, quite how we frame this. It speaks, I think, again to this uh, concern that if they don't seem to be tough on uh, migration policy, if they don't seem to be uh, responding to the needs of uh, local communities uh, as they see it, that then that opens a space up to the right, to populist groups. You know, we had uh, that period when UKIP looked like the coming thing. We don't see that now, but still, there's there's a danger always that uh, if you don't uh, appeal to to those voters to show that you're taking that seriously, that you might lose ownership of that issue. Now, it's not just people that enjoy freedom of movement within the EU. The adoption of harmonised rules on travelling with pets has made it easier for EU citizens to travel with their dogs, cats or even ferrets. And while this issue might not be making the headlines, my mum has certainly been losing sleep, worrying about whether she will be able to travel with her beloved chihuahua after Brexit. Are her concerns valid? 
Uh, yes, I mean, my parents leave their cats at home. Um, it's simpler. <laughs> um, again, this is, I think, one of the things that's, that's really interesting about uh, this whole discussion. Brexit just often comes across as just hugely complex, lots of technicalities, and then something leaps out at you. So, you know, pet passports has been a, a real issue. Um, at the moment, we don't really know how that will play out. You know, let's assume that there is uh, a deal that is signed at the weekend, that is uh, ratified through Parliament, don't ask me how, uh, and comes into effect. You know, then we have this transition period uh, through to the end of 2020, maybe one or two years beyond that, uh, when uh, those rules should carry on. But after that, yeah, there's there's negotiations to be had that the EU has rules, uh, the UK uh, logically falls outside of uh, those rules and those provisions. Um, already we've had guidance from the government that if there's a no deal, then it partly depends on how the EU decides to classify the UK and how much uh distance it wants to put on on those kinds of issues so uh the guidance was saying that basically by the end of november uh so very soon uh if you want to be traveling to uh the eu with your pet you should have been making an appointment with your vet to talk about uh arrangements and paperwork so there's enough time uh for the end of march so Already, these things have long lead-in times uh, for those people who uh, have to travel with uh, animals. And the obvious example here is uh, people with guide uh, animals. That those uh, kind of issues are very disruptive. You know, they are uh, very personal kinds of impacts. And I think people have become used to traveling with their pets in recent years because the system has liberalized. So uh, yeah, whether it's pets, whether it's the, the potential shortage of Mars bars, uh, those are the kinds of things that really press people's buttons and, and make them ask, uh, well, why, why are we having these silly kind of conversations? Surely it's just pets, you know, how difficult can it be? <laughs> uh, and I, you know, the real answer, the, the genuine answer is actually it's very difficult um and very technical so uh yeah i think as time goes on as we kind of work out how this is going to play out we are going to find many more cases like this where you wouldn't immediately think that this was something that would relate to brexit but ultimately everything is going to to be shaped and affected in some way by by what's going to happen Oh dear, I'm not sure she's going to be listening to this podcast. I think this is not the news <laughs> she, she wanted to hear. But we don't. Um, let, 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 tell her, tell her that you know we still don't know for sure. But yeah. <laughs> maybe she should be booking into the vet if she's planning a trip in April. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll let her know. <laughs> um, but putting Brexit's impact on travelling pets or Mars bars to one side, uh, Theresa May has said that a Brexit deal is within our grasp. Yet the future of the 585-page deal seems to be very uncertain. What are the next steps to ratify the deal, and do you think it will be implemented? So once we once we've got a, a text that's signed, uh, which, which should be happening uh, this weekend. Uh, then you've got to get uh, ratification. So you've got to have the approval of the UK parliaments, who've got to have their meaningful votes. They also need to have a, a piece of legislation that they put through the system to, to enact uh, their decision. You've secondly got to have the ratification of the European parliaments uh, by a simple majority. And then you need to have a uh, 
qualified majority of EU member states. So that's uh, more than uh, half, but not everybody. So uh, when the Spanish say that they'll veto Brexit because of Gibraltar, they're not actually able to to, to veto Brexit. So um, the, the sequence will be the UK first, then the EU, because the EU and indeed the UK recognise that the UK is the, the, the difficult bit. So we're going to see in the coming weeks the government going back to Parliament with uh, its finalised and signed texts, and then it's going to have to get those uh, through Parliament. And I think this is really where there is the, the biggest question mark about the, the next steps of the process. We know that um, on the basis of public statements, the government does not have close to a majority uh, support for the withdrawal agreement. At the same time, we also know that there is not a majority uh, in favour of any of the other options. So leaving uh, with no deal, uh, leaving with a different deal or not leaving at all, or alternatively, let's have a, a referendum or a general election to try and sort this out. So uh, Parliament's really in a bind. And in terms of you know the, the chances of success, I think I'm inclined to say that somehow we will find the UK muddling through because that's tended to be the, the the pattern so far that each time we've had one of these kind of crises, people resign and they say things and you know lots of heated comments and uh, lots of speculation uh, on uh, places like this. Um, but at the end of the day, the UK ends up sticking with the program, uh, and largely it's because there isn't a clear alternative consensus you know if the criticism that Theresa May was getting for this text was all coming from one place then that one place I think would be, have a really strong chance of uh, occurring that uh, but instead you know if you look at what the debates in parliament it's uh, criticism from all sides you know she's too soft she's too hard she's wants this, she wants that, she should be doing more or less the other. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of maxim of that if everyone's unhappy, you must be doing something right. And it surely is the, the appropriate compromise. So there's nothing that Theresa May could do that will make even a, a fraction of her critics happier without making the rest of them less happy. So I think because partly because there's an understanding that there is no clear alternative path, Parliament might well find that it, 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 it grudgingly gives its approval. It won't be happy about it, it won't be enthusiastic, it won't be a big majority. Um, but, you know, if nothing else, I think, you know, given that the least popular outcome to this process is a, a no-deal Brexit, when that no-deal is the default outcome of this process, and, and we really have to underline that, that uh, all things being equal, if we don't get a decision to the contrary, the UK leaves without a deal on the 29th of March. So you have to have an active decision. So when Labour parliamentarians say that they'll vote against the deal because they want to stop Brexit, uh, all that they will do is, in the first instance, by voting against it and defeating it, is increase the chances of a no deal. So they have to then go and find a majority for their stopping Brexit approach. So I think the, the realities of the situation might well weigh heavy on, on uh, both sides of the, uh, of the chamber to produce a situation where you, you somehow bodge together a, a coalition. What are your views on a second referendum? Uh, I think, firstly, that it's 
I can I understand the logic that's been advanced that as we know more about what leaving involves, we should give people the opportunity to express their opinion about it because the the 2016 referendum was saying leave or remain, but we didn't say anything about what that actually involved. Um, that in mind, though, I think there is a huge amount of political resistance in Westminster to having another referendum. Um, for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's clear that uh, Theresa May doesn't like opening up her decision making. She likes making decisions with as few people as possible. So already it was a huge struggle to get Parliament to have the role that it does. You remember the, the Gina Miller case back in late 16, uh, which basically opened the way to its parliamentary uh, approval of the the referendum decision. So she's not happy about Parliament having a role. She's certainly not happy about uh, having a, a general uh, vote uh, on the matter. The second key issue is that uh, there is a huge uncertainty about how people will vote in uh, any referendum. We know from polling that um, it depends a lot on how you word the question and you know we're not even clear what the question would be that uh is it just we leave with the deal or we leave without the deal um which would be the, the narrowest interpretation or as many uh people who'd like not to leave at all uh argue we should also have the option of not leaving at all but then you've got three options on the paper uh all of which makes it much harder to get an absolute majority you know if we imagine that the the vote split three ways and it was just by a couple of votes that one of them won you know so just uh in the low 30 percent of the vote you could imagine the huge issues around legitimacy of that uh outcome whatever it, it might be and I think the final point that's worth uh, stressing on a, a second referendum is that it will be very hard for those who want to defend the deal uh, to advance a positive argument. The, the withdrawal agreement is essentially about ending the UK's membership. It's not really about the future relationship. You know, the political declaration is an aspirational document. We would love to get along, do stuff together. We'll be best of buddies, even though that we're not in the, the same organizational unit. Um, instead, the withdrawal agreement is about tying off the liabilities. So the financial liabilities, most obviously, uh, liabilities towards citizens in each other's territories, uh, a backstop arrangement should this all go belly up, uh, and then a transition arrangement where the UK has to follow all the rules uh, and loses its seat at the table uh, during that period. So uh, if you wanted to campaign against that, uh, it's one of the reasons that parliamentarians really don't like it, is it's just a whole lot of costs now with a promise that in the future things might get better. So I think campaigners might find, uh, quite apart from the whole argument about, look, they're making you vote again to try and vote the right way kind of argument, that, that they're going to find that it's a very difficult battle that they will have in trying to sell the benefits of this, because ultimately the withdrawal agreement is uh, about the past rather than about the future. Um, you know, they might find that it would be easier to, to make the argument about the explicit approval of the people uh, at the point that a future relationship treaty is negotiated in a year, a couple of years time. But uh, yeah, I think the, the, the chances of a second referendum happening at the moment look very small, certainly with this government. 
Um, and if it does happen, I think there are huge difficulties in uh, mobilizing a campaign that is likely to be successful um, with the general public. And final question, are you optimistic about Brexit? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, on the basis of what I've told you, I don't know. I, you know, I always like to think I'm optimistic, but then I start explaining options and pathways, and uh, I don't sound very cheery. I, the difficulty is, is that this whole process is going to be about costs. Literally, any pathway that we take from remaining to leaving without a deal, and at all points in between, involve costs. There will be costs to the UK uh, economically, uh, politically. Uh, in terms of its reputation, uh, social costs of varying kinds at various points. So there is no pathway through this that doesn't uh, cost the UK something pretty substantial. Uh, you know, and the balance of those costs will, will vary between the different options. And I think this has been the real weakness of the the, the debate that we've uh, had in this country is that there's still a lot of uh, cakeist unicorn. Uh, promoting uh, thinking that somehow if only we can do X, everything will be all right and we'll be we, be great. You know, maybe in the long run, those things might become true. But in the short to medium term, I think it's going to be the costs that are going to, to loom largest for people. Just to just to, to illustrate that, think about the referendum. The re- referendum had two campaigns who had no incentive to be realistic in in what they claimed. All all that they needed was people to vote for their preferred option, and it didn't really matter why. So we we had a huge coalition for leaving, a huge coalition for remaining. And whichever side won, it was always clear that because that wasn't going to translate into a new government or a a specific programme, that a substantial proportion of that each coalition was going to find itself disappointed about how this goes. Um, because it wasn't the reason that they voted for it. And we go back to those Commonwealth uh, uh, citizens who who thought that this might lead to a loosening of uh, Commonwealth uh, migration policy. So uh, I'm optimistic that it's not the end of the world. But (laughs) (laughs) it's a very low threshold. But I'm I'm much less optimistic that uh, we can uh, tackle the central issue here, which is that we still don't know what the purpose of the exercise is. You know, we've had every opportunity to to have a, a national debate about what kind of society do we want, what kind of role uh, in the international community do we want, um, and you know, to to try and uh, address some of the wounds that uh, opened up during the referendum, and and we singularly have failed in doing that. And as time goes on, the more likely it is that people's attentions drift, people are sick and tired of Brexit, as we keep on hearing. Uh, but, you know, they also know it's important. And I think that, you know, the one message I'd give to, to all listeners is, is that there are still really important decisions to be made here. Uh, and if you don't get involved in making those decisions, other people are going to make them for you. Simon, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Here now with more news, debate and opinion.
So, we know what Simon thinks, but what are your thoughts? Get in touch and write an article for Backbench. And if you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Thanks for listening.